this is Michael Gilbert from Flotsam and Jetsam, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello, this is Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Paul Stanley, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth, and you are here with Iron City Rocks. Yo, what's up? This is Frank Bello from Anthrax, and you are listening to Iron City Rocks. Turn it up! Welcome to episode 400 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. Coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I'm your host, John. Uh, this is the uh, it's a very special episode for us. Uh, for those of you who have been with us um, for some time, we first aired in January of 2009. Here we are 400 episodes later, 10 years later. Uh, we have some very special guests. Wanted to make this very special episode for you, we have joining us in a little bit. We have Denny Lane, who is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is one of the founding members of the Moody Blues. Also, was the only uh, non-McCartney uh, to be on all the Big Wings albums, uh, played with Paul and Linda on those great Wings albums of the '70s. And we have joining us a uh, dynamic duo: David Ellison, Frank Bello of Altitudes and Attitudes. Uh, Frank is the uh, lead vocalist, lead guitarist of uh, Altitudes and Attitude, and, and uh, David Ellison, obviously Megadeth, uh, he's the bass player of the band. Uh, these guys, this is uh, their first full-length album, Get It Out, is coming out in January. Uh, these two have uh, did an EP a few years ago, uh, had a great friendship, had a great time doing it, so they said, oh, let's do a full-length album. So we're going to talk to each one of them individually about the project uh, in just a few moments. And we also have joining us from the band Flotsam and Jetsam, we have Michael Gilbert to talk about The End of Chaos, their album that's coming out in 2019 in January as well. So without further ado, we're going to play some music from Altitudes and Attitude. Uh, this is from the album that drops in January. Uh, we're going to get into that interview. We're going to start with Frank Bello, and then we'll go on to David Ellison.
special to welcome to the show. We have Frank Bellow of Altitudes and Attitudes. Uh, I guess I should say at this point, lead singer and lead guitarist Frank Bellow. How are you doing today, That's Frank? It's so weird to hear that. I'm doing well. That is so weird to hear that. Yeah. Um, it, the lead singer thing, it's like, see, I don't consider myself the, the lead singer guy. It, um, it's weird because I just find that's the easiest way to get these songs out, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Without, That's the most direct way to get what I have in the gut, I guess, out. And that was the easiest path. And and really, thankfully, I'm really grateful for this. There's been a, nice, a lot of nice words from people coming back and saying that they're digging it. So, um, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm pretty stoked on it. Yeah, I mean that that is a great point you bring up. I mean, so many times, you know, I'm sure Charlie can can speak to this. You, you know, you're writing for a singer, but you know, sometimes you know to have the voice that can just do what you hear in your head is, is got to be a really nice tool in your belt when you know, when you're making this kind of music. Um, did did you find singing intimidating I mean was it I mean obviously you're singing background vocals and things like that your whole career but I mean when it's your turn to step up the mic and the eyes are on you is that kind of get in your head at all no and here, here's the funny thing about this I've always sung just not in anthrax mm-hmm. in fact if you look back at the anthrax's history I've done some b-sides like some police songs and stuff like that sure. some kiss songs that I've sang lead on on the b-sides but um you know, everybody's got their job in Anthrax. Right. Joey's one of the best vocalists ever. So for for me, I love his voice, and there's no reason we don't need another singer in Anthrax. So, but I've always done sing. I've always sang at home, um, open mics at home mm. in New York. This is what I've done over these years. I mean, I live in New York. I go downtown, uh, and when I want to try out stuff, I bring an acoustic guitar. It's just me, the mic, and and a, uh, and a guitar in front of an audience and try stuff out. So I've always done it. It's it's just like now it it was just it it made total sense to do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it certainly even when you listen to the songs, you know, very genuine um, lyrical content is is very interesting. But your voice, I think, is one of the things that I find very interesting about the album because you've got this sort of I don't want to say Dave Grohl, but it is very Dave Grohl sounding. You know, tone to your voice, it fits in really well with, you know, you know, obviously a very bass-centric, uh, you know, some of the songs are very bass-centric, I don't want to say it's a bass album, because it's not, but, um, you know, it fits in very well with what you guys are doing. Um, well, thank you for that, I appreciate that. When when you write, or when you guys wrote these songs, I mean, was it something that you spent some time, you know, physically together, did you take use of technology, obviously you guys are everywhere in the world touring um, and not that much together um, how did you go about getting the songs together it's funny you, you bring that up because I remember the first writing session the first official writing session Dave and I had I was playing in Arizona with, with Anthrax I had a show there that night mm-hmm. and Dave literally came pick, to pick me up before sound check I went over to his house and we wrote a couple of songs and, and that, because we both had ideas for certain, certain things and we had a couple of and they turned out to be songs Mm-hmm. So we had a great session there, and then we went home and wrote on our own for a little bit, and and then we got together again, and we'd be periodic, okay. uh, and then we just get these songs together, facetiming and all that good stuff, and uh, again, then getting together with Jay Rustin, our, our producer, and made it was just a really seamless kind of thing. It was really easy, and and it, it was, we enjoyed it, man. It was like a great vibe. 
Yeah, now, do you, when you're writing, you know, you mentioned doing some stuff on open mic nights and things like that. When, when you're yeah. noodling around, as, you know, all musicians do, do certain riffs, things you put together, you just kind of compartmentalize and say, okay, this is a, this is a good one for the altitudes. Uh, or, or do you guys kind of spawn these riffs when you're together more? I kind of do, actually, at home more. At home, I, 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 I'm look. I'm actually standing in the place where I do it all the time. I have this. My my wife and my son bought me a. This, I guess you want to call it dad chair, mm-hmm. like a, a recliner. I sit on this chair, and when they go to sleep at night, it's my time. <laughs> I put my amp on. I put the TV on mute, and you just go for it and have fun. That's that's where the stuff comes from, I think. Um, and that's the best creative time. It's open. You know, there's nothing you have to be worried about oh, making too much noise or anything. But that's the creative, that my my favorite creative space right there. So I think that's and it, you get to record. I, I have my iPhone right there, so if anything good comes out, mm-hmm. it's recorded. I put a melody on top of that with vocals if it, if it's there, and um, that's really how the, the altitude stuff came out a lot. A lot of that. Uh, Frank, when you write, do you write uh, acoustic guitar? Or do you uh, do you use the bass when you write, or where do you start? Never it? with bass. It's very, very rare that I'll even bring, unless it's a twelve, an eight-string bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, they, like Dave and I, he has a ten-string bass. I have a he has a signature ten-string bass with Jackson. I have a signature eight-string bass with with uh, ESP. We use the ESP bass quite a lot in the studio with altitude and attitude. It really worked for the foundation of the sounds, um, it, and it, it always goes back to like the uh, the days of. The great days of um, still the still great band Cheap Trick, yeah. Tom Peterson. That eight string sound with those songs, it's almost like a piano like kind of bass, where there's a piano kind of tone on top of the actual bass note that was very fill it filled the atmosphere up of the song, and I always remember that um, it was always a beautiful sound. So we brought that into Altitude and Attitude. It's a lot of eight string stuff going on. Um, that that Dave played actually. I didn't play a lot of bass on this record. I played more rhythm guitar. Is is that bass? Is that would that be the normal tuning and then a down it or I'm sorry up it uh, octave? Well, what they in do that? they have an octave, they have regular tuning and the other strings an octave. Which okay, is awesome. So you're getting essentially a guitar inside yeah. the bass. Okay, like that that kind of tone, that higher tone, which is awesome. Yeah, that that is it's a fascinating sounding instru- instrument. Um, it is. Now, it, when you do rhythm guitar work, um, do you? I mean, obviously, you, almost every bass player you know that's been in the industry long enough is always an accomplished guitarist. But um, do you tend to write, you know, in particular, like types of chords, or, or how do you approach writing on guitar? Is it you're kind of a power chord guy? You know, I've always wondered how bass players approach a guitar because you know certain bass players kind of atta- you know almost treat it like a mini bass. Yeah. No, I just uh, it's it's really about just riffing, mm-hmm. and maybe that comes from my anthrax days. Right. But um, it's just riffing, whatever makes sense. Ah, oh, that sounds good. What is that thing? You know, you just playing, just fiddling along, just playing, mm-hmm. experimenting. Something sounds good that catches your ear. Well, what is that? And you stop, you play it again, and you start to develop it. And it, that's pretty much what I do here in my living room here. Um, and you keep growing on that. What part? What's what, what, what could be next? And you just kind of let it flow and see what comes of it. Mm-hmm. And then after you have your progression, like one main part, like either reverse 
or a chorus or a bridge, you know, sometimes I just say, well, that's a good bridge. That's a good, that's a good chorus. I'll save this for something. Right. And then you start remembering, oh man, remember that other part I had on this? And then I go to my phone and I'll go yeah. to that part and this will marry this. There you and go. that's kind of how you were doing it. And then all of a sudden it starts to work. And sometimes it just comes out all at once, which is a lot of fun too. Yeah, and much easier than the old Fostech days, you know, trying to remember oh, which dude. cassette you had then. Are you kidding, man? I, those those are hard. Those are hard days with that stuff. Just finding everything. Oh man, I, I, I'm, I'm going to rewind this tape. I'm sure yeah. it's in the beginning of this one. Remember? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, sadly. I mean, it was great for the time. You know, don't get me so wrong. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, just, I, you, you do what you can do at the time, right? So you just that's what the great thing about technology is that that it's much, it's much swifter, and you can get to the parts and becomes a lot more cohesive mm-hmm. uh, the bad thing about technology is that it's just too much <laughs> yeah it can be it's just too much certainly overwhelming now, when you yeah. w- once you've got you know kind of an idea for a guitar part you know throughout the different parts of the song the vocal melody which is always something that kind of fascinates me because that's the one thing as a guitarist I could never do is, is come up with good vocal melodies um, do you tend to you know, just kind of scat ideas as you're playing, or do you go back and listen to what you've recorded and maybe, you know, kind of mentally come up with some melodies, or how do you approach the vocal melody? Great question, and here, I'll, I'll put it in case in point. There's a song called Slip on the Altitudes and Attitude mm-hmm. record, um, and it's funny because it's like one of the, the songs that a lot of people in these interviews keep coming up to that they really like, which is great to hear, and I love yeah. to, I'm thankful for that. But that, that song came from the same part in my living room, sitting on with an acoustic guitar, just playing that one note, dun 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 dun. And that melody just came out, na 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 na. That melody came off that guitar note. Mm-hmm. I was just holding that one. I think it's a B. I think, I think it's a B. Just strumming the dun 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 dun, and the melody just. I don't know where it came from, but it just came out. And that kind of, it all worked. Um, and, and that's one of the songs that just kept going. So that, yeah. And then you, you progress down to the G, slip away, slip away, and you know, and it went right into the chorus. So it, 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 it differs. It differs how it goes. But I really, I love that, that that stuff could actually happen. That comes out of... Thankfully, it just comes out of one note. Isn't that cool that something yeah. like that could just come out of one note, that melody? Um, I, I love melody. I've always been uh, a melody guy. I, I love a good mo- melody, um, melodic song. Like, if There's nothing better than, for me, with like a heavy riff with a good melody on top of it. Yeah, and, and that can be so challenging. I know this, again, speaking from my own limited experiences, sometimes you end up, you know, as a musician wanting to just sing a vocal that matches a guitar part and you end up with you know a lot of what you know and this is no criticism to Ozzy but a lot of Ozzy stuff he's singing pretty much what Tony is playing but you know to be able to go off into that you know I always think of it as the Dio method where you're going off into a different you know complementary melody to what the guitar is can make it so you know just fascinating to listen to well you you think about it I always call it a song within a song mm mm-hmm you know, it's it's like almost like two different things coming up, but really melting together into this one cool thing. And yeah. I've always been like that. I mean, there's some parts where you want to follow the the the, the, um, the song structure, you, right. or the some certain parts. But for me, the challenge has always been how about going outside of it and seeing what we come up with to 
just add the extra layers on it to make right. it more interesting and more and just catchy. I mean, I use the word catchy a lot. I just yeah. I need the, I I just like a good hook and whether well, yeah. you know. It's just the way it is. I just like a good hook. Yeah, I mean that's you know you know like it or not that's what people you know ninety percent of people probably walk away remembering is you know is that the hook, you know I mean not to say that you can't walk away with some other you know really cool riffs. I mean there's you know the weirdos in us to listen to Led Zeppelin and walk away singing the guitar part, but yeah you know. that's still a melody. You know that that's yeah. the it doesn't have to be a vocal melody. It could be a guitar melody. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, I love a good. Even in most extreme music, I also like just straight out yelling. I, I like that sometimes. You know, yeah. I, I think it's important to have everything. Just, yeah. just to listen to everything. Like I, I, I also like a good heavy vocal. Yeah. You know, maybe it's not for altitudes and attitude. Maybe you know it's for something else. But I, I, I like the challenge of that. I think it's really cool and to be open with everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Certainly, mixing that in is part of a you know a palette to paint with. You know, an aggressive vocal, a melodic vocal. I mean, there's so yeah, many things you can do it, there. Yeah, let it be and see where it goes, where the where, where the song tells you to go. You know. Now, um, as you know, a New Yorker, um, yeah. you guys, you guys invited Ace to do a solo. Uh, yes. Did, did that blow the young, you know, fifteen year old Frank Bella's mind that Ace is playing on your record? Dude, I, I'll be honest with you, I, and I talked about this a little bit before, but man, if you told the 15-year-old Frank Bello that was waiting in front of Madison Square Garden, in front of the Ace poster, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember this, in front of uh, Madison Square Garden, they used to have this great Ace, po- Ace Fraley poster with a smoking guitar, right in front of it, and, and there used to be a meeting place for a lot of us. Yeah. So if we were going to a show, we meet in front of the Ace poster in front of Madison Square Garden. That's what we do. So if you told Frank, a 15-year-old Frank Bello that Ace Frehley was going to play a lead on a song that he wrote, number one, I would never would have believed you. I thought you were high. Yeah. And I just never would have thought that it was at all possible. And and plus, it was a classic Ace lead. The way he played it, it was amazing. The way it's so what I wanted. And uh, Dave and I, we really uh, we ch- we chased Ace for a while. We got him. We because he was so busy. Yeah. Well, we had we we waited, and I'm glad we waited because it, it meant so much to us, and I think the solo came out incredible. Yeah. Now, did he? Did you just get one solo from him, or did you have to pick? Because uh, that one. would be okay. That's probably that better. Was one. Yeah. Could could yeah, you pick? Was, yeah. I, I'd be like, no, I'll just put them both in. We'll make another song for it if we have to. Yeah, exactly. It was it was he he, he did it for late, and uh, we gave him the track, and he really he really liked the track. I was really psyched to hear that. Um, and it, it all worked out really nicely. His management, John, helped out, so it was, it was it was a great thing. Yeah, it came out really well. Now, thank you. In, in using, you know, you you guys used you know, several guitarists, Anita and, and uh, John, etc. Um, did you guys, when you're mixing the album, give any thought to, you know, do we want these to sound like a cohesive thing, or should you know should their tone kind of jump out and be the individual players? Um, you know when you know when you go back and listen to it, you know because you don't this, to the naked eye without reading the credits, you might not go, oh, that's completely different guitarist than it was on track four. Um, you know, other yeah. than Ace, obviously sounds quite a bit different. But was did when mixing it and things like that, did were you trying to make them just be what they are? Or do you want it to be able to kind of jump off the page of that one's Nita, that one's John? I think they all spoke for themselves, honestly. Sure. When, when, you know what's great about working with Jay Rustin? He knows all these players. Uh, mm. I mean, Anita, um, Gus G, I mean, uh, Russ, 
he's, he knows all these players and he knows how they work and Jay gets it out of them. It, it's incredible. It, it's yeah. really incredible. These these players, I mean, and I say this with all fondness, they, they came they came with it. Every one of them. Uh, all our friends. Um, and they really, it really matched the song. I don't know if, I, if I'm explaining it right, but yeah. it really fit the song. Every one of the leads we got that came in fit the song. Yeah, and, and, and it, it really it rose it rose that's what I loved about it I think it brought it to a new level um, for, for me um, because I'm such a fan of these people the way they play I mean that that Nita I'm not not even to pick anybody but that Nita solo is incredible uh, yeah. Rust I mean the harmonics he did it's, it's incredible Ace I mean um, Mickey Black played on it there's a lot of great players that just just went for it and I'm just happy that it all worked out really to the benefit of the song, really, I think everybody yeah. rallied and, and really did a great job. So I couldn't be more psyched about it. Yeah, and I think you 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 know what is kind of neat is you ended up with you know you've got a lot of great players. You've got two you know heavyweights of the bass arena. Jeff does a great job on the drums, but you know the the resultant is still a very uh, approachable. You know, it's a musician's album, but it's still very approachable to a non-musician. It's got. You know, I dare say radio friendly, but that you know, that's I don't even know if that's a thing anymore in the music industry. I don't know if that's a, yeah. I don't know but these songs, <laughs> you know, you know, these are the kind of songs you can throw on when you're, you know, uh, you know, with your friends in the car, and it's not like you're listening to, you know, like a guitar geek album, you know, for lack of you, a better. You time. just hit it on the head. That's that's the kind of record I want. I want to, yeah. I want the record that you could put on. You're with your friends in the car, dude. You could open the windows. And, and listen to this record and, and, mm. and just have a great time with it. That's yeah. you hit it on the head. That's what I want. And if you, you just hearing you say that, I thank you for that. Um, it makes all the world to me. It really does. Yeah, I mean, because it would have been you know probably a bit cliche if you'd gone in and done thirteen just bass duels, you know, and, and somewhat odd, quite honestly. It would have been very different in the marketplace, you know. I mean, obviously there's some great bass players out there that have done, you know, instrumental albums. Stu Ham, for example, makes, you know, Absolutely. great stuff. But, you know, that's not what this is. You know, this is a very song-centric record. Um, you know, I think that makes it really interesting, you know. I agree, and that's why it's all about the song. And, and it has to, for, for Dave and I, because we could do the bass thing, that's fine. Mm. But it, you know, it, but that's also been done by a lot of great players that yeah. have done it. You know, and do you want to go down that road? I, I've always been. This is something I always wanted to come out with. Like, there's a lot of, and Dave and I, there's a lot of songs inside of us, quite mm -hmm. honestly. And to get them out, hence the the title, get it out. It, it's really cathartic, and it's really almost like a re, a release. So, mm -hmm. um, it's just yeah. hearing you say that, I really thank you for that, and because I think you get it. Yeah, it is. It's it's certainly you know. I think from the moment you listen to the first song, you're like, okay, this is what this is. Because you really, you know, I think a lot of people are going to see the names, you know, know your pedigree, and think, you know, this is going to be, you know, kind of a, a shrapnel record sort of thing. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, there's some fantastic stuff on shrapnel, not to discount that. But right. this is, you know, like I said, more of a, you know, radio. You know, turn it on the car. You know, enjoy listening to it. Not like uh, a musician's record. You know, and that's right. That, that, that's it. And that's it, in, in a nutshell. And it, again, it, it wasn't driven to, towards radio. It mm. just, again, the hooks have always been important right. to me. It's just the way they came out. And all I can ever be is who I am. Like to be honest with everything. Mm. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm a, I mean, if you know me, I'm a straight shooter. 
I don't try to do anything. I don't on purpose. I just want to do what I want to do. And, sure. um, and this, this is the way it came out. So it's an honest, it's a really from an honest approach, really. Now, you guys are going to be going on the road with this. I know you're doing some shows in Europe in, I believe it's February, and you're doing some states with, or I'm sorry, some dates with Slash in Europe. Yeah. Do you, is there time? I know obviously Dave is going to be on the road with Megadeth and Ozzy's tour. Do Anthrax have much in the way of defined touring plans for 2019? And, we do. And, we do. And that's, that's the whole trick. And you know, that's always been the agreement with Dave and I from the beginning. We do this, we want to make this like a cool little uh, vibe thing when we have time. And that's put it out and, and hopefully people want to check it out and, and come out to the shows when we have time. Just like we have, Dave and I have February off, which is yeah. rare. <laughs> which yeah. is rare. But um, I go on tour straight from the Altitudes and Attitude Tour, straight from our last show in Germany with Flash. I'm literally getting on a plane to Australia yeah, to start with Anthrax with Slayer. So... I go there, he goes to the Aussie tour, and what I'm hoping is later on, sometime in the year, we have an open window to do some more shows. And that, yeah. That's the idea. So hopefully it becomes like this thing that when we have, and people, hopefully people understand when we have time, we'll, we'll, we'll do some shows with it. And that's the idea. Yeah, and it's got to be kind of fun switching gears um, to this type of music after, you know, doing a, a Slayer Anthrax tour. You're certainly in a, a certain mindset, you know, with music. Oh, yeah. Um, to c- totally. come and do this has got to be... I always think of these things as it's probably got to help recharge your batteries musically to be able to just go and do something totally different. Totally um, does. And, you know, it's funny, coming from home from the, the, the tour, which was incredible, that whole mm-hmm. six weeks of touring, but I've started to do... Um, interviews for Altitude and Attitude now so it's such a different world just to hear mm-hmm. and, and quite honestly <clears throat> I've been out of the game for a while with, with the Altitude stuff because it's all been the Anthrax stuff so sure. hearing the uh, and the great response I'm very grateful for that the great response we're getting from people now hearing it like the reviewers are are hearing it and, and coming back with some really nice words it's really it's fulfilling that's yeah. the, the best word right now I can feel and I'm, very, I'm just grateful for it man that's wonderful well Frank I don't want to keep you I want to thank you so much for your time today and hopefully we'll see you in, in, in the Pittsburgh area before too long um, same here man celebrating five decades of the Prince of Darkness Ozzy Osbourne No More Tours 2 with special guest Megadeth Bank Pavilion, June 13th. Get tickets now at LiveNation.com. Ozzy Osbourne. Witness a living legend live. There's more at Ozzy.com. All right, a big thank you to Frank Bellum. I'm going to be doing a bunch of shows again with uh, Anthrax. Uh, They're going to be touring with Slayer through a good part of 2019. Uh, We're going to switch gears now and talk to David Ellison. David, uh, um, kind of interesting uh, to be the bass player in the band of bass players. Uh, and it was curious. I, I was very curious to get a chance to ask him what it was like to play bass for another bassist. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, he's also going to be touring with uh, Megadeth, going to be coming through Pittsburgh uh, as part of Megadeth and Ozzy Osbourne coming in June to the uh, Key Bank Pavilion. So uh, get your tickets for that now. But let's right now talk to David Ellison. Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line David Ellison. How you doing, David? Great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, you, you and Frank Bellow are just on the eaves of, of releasing um, 
Get It Out, a fantastic new record, um, a very song-oriented record um, with Attitudes and Altitudes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how um, the idea, you know, of the two of you kind of collaborating? I know this goes back uh, five or so years, but how did the, you know, where did the idea hatch from? Well, the idea hatched when we were doing our base clinics together uh, during the big four shows back in 2000, uh, I guess it was 2011, I think it was, 11 and 12. And, um, you know, that's that's where I I just said, look, we should create some backing tracks at least to have for our clinics. Um, mm-hmm. And when we started throwing some ideas over to each other on email, just sending some song ideas, riffs and things, you know, um, what we realized is like we're actually real songwriters <laughs> and uh um i i had some thing our first ep had three songs on it and uh frank brought in booze and cigarettes and tell the world which were pretty much complete um as an as ideas uh, at least the framework of the songs were there and i brought in this track that we titled here again um because it was mostly uh, uh that particularly was something i wanted to use for backing tracks Right. Um, and we actually have used them at backing tracks and we did an event at Bass Player Live uh, a few years back but um, we actually collaborated on the lyrics and completed as a full song as well so um, that's where it started and then from there we just had so much fun doing it and brought producer Jay Rustin in who's also a bass player and <clears throat> you know that he, he got the idea of it and he really understood what we were trying to do and you know, I think that the thing of it is, is that as much as it spawned out of bass clinics, it, it, the, this record is anything but a bass geek, uh, you know, sort of self-indulgent thing. It, it's quite the opposite, actually. It's right. very much a, uh, a song-oriented uh, album, um, and that's something that we're very proud of, actually. Yeah, I was actually in, in discussions with Frank. You know, you could look at this and say, okay, you've got kind of two titans of the bass. Um, this is going to be, you know, might be like a Mike Varney type of, of thing. Not to knock that kind of music at all. I mean, that's, there's some fantastic stuff in that genre, but this is not that. This is, you know, when you put this on, this is probably more akin to a Foo Fighters record than, you know, something like that. Um, was was that a direction you wanted to head, or is it just where it naturally took you guys? when you were writing you know it just where it naturally it's where it naturally took us again you know the idea of hey let's write some backing tracks versus mm. the album we you have in your hand <laughs> i think yeah. is uh um it, it, it it's it you know that's i think is the is the idea that you let the creative process take you rather than you always having to direct where the creative thing goes um in fact the other day somebody asked me in one of my base story events uh when i was doing the master class in the music school they asked me about, you know, creativity and modes and scales. And I said, listen, when I create, I forget all the rules. I completely set all theory and music knowledge aside mm-hmm. because that's when you really take down the walls of your creativity and you just let it go wherever it goes. And sometimes putting your hand on, a, on an instrument could be a guitar, a bass, a piano, even something that you don't play. Like in piano, I don't play it very mm-hmm. much, but sometimes I'll just put my hand down on the piano and I'll hear a chord. And it just opens up a half hour of improv- improvising at my house. And, um, you know, my iPhone is, you know, I don't have a big, huge digital workstation at home. For me, my digital workstation is my phone. Because for me, it's more important to capture a moment, capture an idea, 
Um, And then in this case, when I would take those ideas to Frank, um, we'd be in the studio together working on things. And, um, and that's where, you know, the two of us would build something up even greater. Um, Frank would bring in, you know, pretty much completed song ideas. Mm -hmm. I would bring in often musical uh, ideas and then maybe with a tinge of an a tinge of a thought for what a a lyric would be and then frank would jump in and then we together we would collaborate on it so um i would play bass to all frank's songs and that was a real joy for me and he loved it he's like wow it's like i just love hearing you play bass to Mm -hmm. my songs and and i loved it because it allowed me to play bass to an entirely different style yeah. and genre um, than, than just playing thrash or even hard rock music, but to just go into it with this more... Um, my my bass lines are sort of like little sub-songs within those songs. Do you... Um, in be, Being the bassist for essentially another bassist, is there any... Does that affect how you play it all, even maybe subconsciously, when you're playing a line for him as opposed to something you may take... You know, to a Megadeth record, or you know, some of your previous endeavors. Good question, and the answer is: is when I'm sitting with Frank, he has a guitar in his hand and he's hmm. singing. So to me, I'm not conscious like, oh, I better come up with something because this is the bass player from Anthrax. This right. is my friend Frank mm-hmm. just sitting there with a guitar in his song. So for me, I immediately just start playing bass to what I think the song needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's um, oh, was something that, that when I listened to this, I was like, you know, I, I didn't know how you guys were breaking up the duty, so I'd actually asked for the liner notes, and I started looking like, okay, you know, to get a feel for who's doing what, and like, I wonder if that's intimidating, you know, right, to to, right. to sit down and do that. Um, when when you guys do this, obviously you're both as busy as can be. You, you've gone from just being a bass player to being, you know, really a music entrepreneur with your own label, coffee, and. And obviously, Frank has been busy almost all of 2018 on the Anthrax and Slayer tour. You guys obviously don't have a lot of time to collaborate. Um, is that hard, or um, are you guys who kind of thrive under that sort of pressure of you know we have three days or two hours or whatever time frame you're given to be able to collaborate? Is that you thrive in that, or does that make it more difficult? Yeah. Well, I think we we always look for the win because we're so excited about mm-hmm. the the process and we're excited about the songs, we're excited about the outcome. Um, we love getting together anytime we can. Sometimes it would be for two days in LA, some mm-hmm. right maybe right before Nam. Uh, other times Frank would fly out, I would drive out from Phoenix and we would intentionally set a four day schedule. Um and a lot and hey, and there's a third schedule and that's of producer Jay Rustin. Sure. Oh, and yeah. uh and thank God we got we got drummer Jeff Friedel at a period before he got really super busy in all of Maynard's bands because sure. uh there was a period then when we could we could lock Jeff down to come in and play on you know, to track the drums on these sessions. Um, before he got super busy, uh, he was playing in Debo and Pussifer, but, but, uh, Maynard was mostly doing, uh, Tool and a perfect circle. Well, now, now Jeff's in a perfect circle. So, yeah. quite honestly, he's as busy as we are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was, you know, kind of this moment there. So a lot, yeah, certainly there was some logistics and scheduling. But, you know, when everybody's excited to get in the room because they walk away from the session with this, the creative emotional payoff mm-hmm. I tell you what that's a better motivator than any paycheck um, because 
when you that that and that is just a real desire to want to be there and want to bring your best it no matter how many hours or days you have to do it and that's what we found with a and a is that because this was such a labor of love and the and the expanse that we got to create under um helped and i think uh, you know quite honestly you know we were you know when we're out doing our our main band gigs mm-hmm. um you know, there we we have a role within those those bands, and uh, I think for a, for A and A, it allowed us to step out of those roles completely. Um, and, and you know, to the degree that while I may have had a bass in my hand, uh, it was very different bass playing. And yeah. I picked up the the eight string bass and plugged it into the Kemper, and I played ended up playing lead bass, almost like lead guitar lines on the bass mm-hmm. uh, throughout the record. Um, in fact, quite honestly, the eight string bass became the hook it became the real sound of a and a from a musical point right. um because we we were blessed to be able to tap some amazing lead guitar talent with gus g and nita strauss and h fraley and you know a whole slew of people that were kind enough to uh you know to work with us on this record but then there were moments when it was like you know let's not just cop out and go oh we'll have a play it let's let, let's how can we do this ourselves and the eight sure. string bass was was the that basically you know basically uh tightened up the chasm you know what i mean that right. that uh that we were able to to uh you know be you know play that instrument because it created this whole other melodic component um that that helped us you know really really and and then and it also added this this really beautiful uh harmonic backdrop across the entire record from a physical standpoint is the eight string bass uh, is it significantly harder to play than a regular bass i mean obviously for you know a guitar is going to a 12 string there's a bit of a you know a, a grip strength sort of issue but does it make much difference to you when, when you're adding you know essentially guitar strings underneath the bass it, it is, and it's the same. It's the same transition from six to twelve string, going mm. from you know four to eight. But um, there's uh, there's also you know by using the Kemper, we had added a nice sort of dirty top end to it, and that mm. made it so much easier to play. It's kind of like a lead guitar. Mm. If you just plug it in and want to play clean, you know, it, it sounds like you know you're playing in the in the 1950s. <laughs> Right. When you add, sure. when you plug it into a Marshall and you add some gain, suddenly you're in the modern world. Then you've got something. Suddenly the guitar has an entirely different voice to it, and the same thing happened with us. I think by uh, it was not only how we played it and what we played, but certainly the um, you know the Kemper added this really terrific uh, tone modification that that mm. that just helped the instrument become a real seamless part of the band. David, I know over the years you've played with your fingers and with a pick. With with an eight string, did you strictly pick that? I strictly pick it, and uh, fortunately, the bass that we got, Frank, where I had ESP guitars bring down a send over a, an eight string that they had a, 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 a production model. And as soon as I got it, I immediately called them, swiped my credit card, and bought it. Yeah. And I just leave it actually out over in Jay Rustin's studio in LA. I just left it there. Um, for us to, you know, we're using it to just have it there to work, work with it. And then uh, I had Jackson guitars, uh, 
make for me a ten string yeah. because I play five string. I wanted to have that uh, that luxury of having the you know the octave string down on the on the low B string. Um, so I have, I think, probably the only ten string bass in existence in the world, which is yeah. kind of cool, um, and uh, which is what I'll use for live applications now. Um, and uh, you know the which is ironic because I had Jackson make me the five string bass on the Rust in Peace tour with Megadeth because I needed a five string to tour on that. <laughs> so it's kind of funny how Jackson, you know, we've we've. You know, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and Jackson yeah. and I have had such a great partnership over the years with that. But yeah, that was a question. In fact, we actually had to go to some great lengths to fight to getting the bridge right with that because, you know, if you're a finger player, you'd put the octave strings on the bottom yeah. to stroke up, but as a as a pick player, you want the octave string on the top because you're essentially strumming down across the strings. Gotcha. Okay, so you've got to be kind of cognizant of which way you're picking. Um, is the neck uh, essentially yeah. the same width as a five string bass like on, on your 10 string or is it slightly wider to accommodate that it's slightly wider and not much um it's 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 pretty much a five string bass it's pretty much my signature five string mm -hmm. with maybe a slight touch of width to it to just accommodate those octave strings on the outside strings Excellent. Yeah, it's it's it comes across really neat in in you know some of the the YouTube clips I've caught of you guys playing both of those bases and, yeah. and uh, it really uh, I think it, it adds such a neat dynamic to the record. You know, you end up with some things that the, the uh, you know with the, with those two bases. I think even when he and I when Frank and I play bass together, um, you know the couple times that we do and especially for live mm -hmm. um, that eight string essentially puts one of us in this more of a lead guitar player position yeah it's kind of cool um and i think i think you know it's always nice to build harmonic layers you know that you obviously the drums and the bass are one role and the vocals and there's guitar and obviously lead guitar but that eight string bass is something you don't normally hear especially when it's in addition to bass usually you know the records that i grew up cheap trick um and even King's X and things, you know, the the twelve string bass that was the bass that was mm -hmm. that was the tone, and I, I loved that because those were essentially guitar driven bands where the bass sort of stepped up into this guitar domain a little bit. And I what I found with how we did it on A and A is we're able to retain because we have two bass players, <laughs> we're able to retain the bass and then add the the eight string bass up on top of it. Is it difficult from a, a kind of a mixing and mastering to keep you know that much low end from kind of stepping on each other, or do the, does the instrument kind of naturally rise, you know, with the, with the light, lower strings? It does. It naturally rises up. You know, it really does. It's um, and Jay, of course, that's what's nice about you know collaborating with him as our producer on this mm -hmm. is because he's also a bass player. He's certainly made it on a record so he's really good about everything finding its space but yeah the you know the eight string bass really kind of naturally finds its own place in the in the frequency map neat um as far as the guitarist that you used um you got you know some really fantastic guitar work uh, you know the, the solo from ace is so special and neatest playing is really off the charts and um you know even russ's playing i think is really kind of uh, going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had to actually look at that when I yeah. looked at the, the, the liner notes of Rush Parish and like, I recognize the name, but I don't recognize the name. And then I Googled it and I'm like, whoa, 
you know it just kind of i think yeah. leviathan it really is a special track um was how did you go about selecting those were they just you know obviously you guys have a million contacts in the business do you just kind of reach out or do you have a wish list well, you know, there again, Jay Rustin was really helpful because he's really networked into a whole crew of people uh, in, in Los Angeles. And, and he suggested, he made a lot of suggestions because I would sit there and go, you know what, we need a guy. We need a part. We need a thing. Um, and, you know, one of the guys who I really was so thrilled about having come in was uh, Christian from Stone Sour because all along... I've made records over the years um, and done demo songwriting and stuff, and there, I always admire the guys who can come in and just layer these these sort of unspoken, uh, unheroic guitar parts that really fill a record out. Um, and they're and they're oftentimes just a nice chimey Rickenbacker, mm-hmm. you know, through a Vox that kind of a tone. Or there's a sort of adding these nice little arpeggios during the second part of a verse to help lift the verse up before it hits the chorus. You know, putting percussion into a chorus to really kind of help get the groove moving. There, there, there are these subtleties of creating tracks and creating records that I just love that. And again, th- you know, these aren't the big bombastic lead guitar solos that everybody wants to, you know, learn no. off of, you know, the web off of YouTube. You know, these are right. these are really the unsung parts. And Christian was that guy, man. He came in. I was looking for that guy. I was just going, God, we really need a guy to just do this. Um, and and he did that. And um, you know, even on the one track where I had my friend Randy Walker lay down Hammond uh, a Hammond organ patch, mm-hmm. and I had my daughter Athena play piano um, on the very outro piece. I just felt like this song needed to wind down, but yet have this little melodic tail on it. Right. And, um, the Hammond helped beef up the, you know, kind of put this nice bed tray. It didn't need more bass, but it did need a low end support. And the Hammond was perfect. And then my daughter playing the piano gave it this nice sort of tail to walk off and finish the record with, you know? And, um, but yeah, like I, would, I totally agree. I think you picked three really, you know, you know, like Ace Fraley. He's a childhood hero, a hero of ours, and for him yeah, to play sure. on the record, that was one. Me and Frank just sat around, you know, and just went, "Oh my God!" I think, yeah. I think, I think Frank brought it up. He just stopped. He just stopped one day. He just stopped and he looked up. And he goes, "God, because you think we should ask Ace to play on this?" And then right away, me and Jay were like, "Totally, absolutely," yeah. you know. And so we started, started reaching yeah. out to him and say. And same with Russ, I agree. Leviathan was really just this baseline that I had, and I laid it down. I, I picked, I, I wrote it on on a, on a five string bass, and then I picked it up, picked up the the eight string. I laid it down. Um, did you hear it? And then um, I said, "Man, we just again, we need parts. We need something else here." And that's what Jay said. You know what? Let me let me send this over to Russ. I think Russ is the guy. And what Russ brought back, I was like, "Holy cow, man!" I mean, he just took that song to a whole other level. Um, and I wasn't that familiar with his guitar playing. I knew of him yeah. Steel Panther, but I had no idea the depth of his playing. And to me, it sounds like something that just blew my mind, like off of the first Michael Schenker Group album, you know, yeah. where it went deep down into these other avenues that I just, I had, I would have never thought of it, you know, the nylon string and then the lead guitar parts that he adds and, and yeah. supporting lines. I mean, he, He's really uh he's a he's a fifth Beatle on that track. I just can't say enough great about how how well he played on that song. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, and what's nice is that you know when you listen to you know the album, it doesn't sound like you know sometimes you get some of these tribute albums where there's just a hodgepodge of players. It feels like it, but this doesn't. You know, at the end of the record, you don't go, "Okay, this sounded like you know Frank and, and David and, and a bunch of friends." You know, in and out. You know, going through revolving door players. It it has a cohesive feel. Yeah, you know, and, and that's certainly a credit. Yeah, to... that was the thing. We did not want this to be an all star record. You know, right. Frank and I are already famous enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> the two of us coming together like that's the yeah. hook. You know? And, yeah. That... And, you know, fortunately, you know the the our friends are also quite famous. And thank God we got Nita when we did, because, you know, she's always been such a great player. Boy, even her track, when she got, when I got that back, I was like, holy smokes, man, this girl yeah. is just kicking your face in. I mean, she, yeah. she like one up the boys, you know, and that's yeah. Nita, you know, Nita's, Nita's that, that girl who can come in and, and, and it's like, okay, boys, freaking pull your panties up. Let's go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she, she goes head to head with the, with the best out there. And, you know, now she's a big rock star, so I'm glad we got her when we did. Yeah, got her on the way up. Yeah, that is certainly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Hurricane has grown uh, quite a bit in the last uh, few months, and her record's fantastic. So, uh, but David, I don't want to yeah, keep you. I, I know you're you're a busy man, but I want to thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll be in touch when this is released. Okay, yep. man. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Appreciate. It. All right, a big thank you to Frank Bello and David Ellison again. Altitudes and attitude. The album is Get It Out. It's coming out on January 18th. Uh, you can get that on Megaforce Records. And also on the same day, Flotsam and Jetsam, uh, which is a band that's been around, it seems like an eternity, uh, really a, a breakthrough, I think, album for them. The Ends of Chaos will be released the same day. Let's, we're going to play a little bit off of that. We're going to talk to Michael Gilbert.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, with me on the phone, I've got Michael Gilbert from Flotsam and Jetsam. How you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, thanks for joining us. It's uh, always a pleasure to have, uh, you know, members of some of the greatest thrash bands, you know, out there on the show. So really excited to have you. Um, Thank you. I want to, you know, you guys got a lot of stuff going on, and uh, most importantly, you guys got a new album coming out. Um, so let's start off a little bit about talking about the album. Uh, the album's called The End of Chaos. Uh, it's follow-up to 2016's Flotsam and Jetsam. I have to say, this album is killer. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> we spent a lot of time on it. You know, we've got a little bit of a different direction, but I think uh, Flotsam and Jetsam... You know, even though we've been a band for 30 years, I think that we actually hit our stride uh, this mm-hmm. year with this record. Uh, we haven't we haven't had good vibes about a record like this in a long time. You know, we've had we've had a bunch of good reviews on on uh, the singles and stuff that have been released, and everybody that's heard it, uh, everybody's digging it. So we're getting a great response so far. Uh, I can't wait to get it out there. You know, we, we oh, have yeah. been a speed metal band for so many years. And uh, a lot of the interviews that I've been doing, saying, I've been saying that we've kind of, we've got a little bit of a, a, like a power metal thing going on with this. But for some reason, it, it's working with AK's vocals. Man, this guy is a fucking phenomenal singer. Oh, yeah. And every year, you know, he's getting older and stuff like that. But man, he... Uh, no signs of really slowing down. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's always been a killer vocal vocalist. You know, even from the beginning, "No Place for Disgrace" is an amazing album. "Hard on You" is one of my favorite songs ever, and, and just you know, hear you know how he's progressed, how the band's progressed. It, it's it's really awesome. Um, you know, when when Flossy with Jetsam, the last album came out, I thought it was a it was a great album. Uh, we had AK on the show uh, earlier in the year, and he said, you know, wait to hear the new one; it's going to blow it away. And, and boy, was he right! When I when I first got the advanced copy, I listened to it. I literally have not stopped listening to it since uh, several times a day. It's it's on repeat. Sweet, right on. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we have a. Something about this lineup this time, it's just really gelled. The songwriting came pretty easy. Um, you know, the way we usually design the songs is Steve and I come up with guitar riffs. He's got right. his studio at home, and I got mine. And, and we submit all this all this music to AK. And he just kind of picks and chooses what he wants to sing over and what he feels he can sing something strong over. And uh, we kind of let him roll with it, you know. And, and the guy fucking killed it this time. Like, I listen to... Sometimes I don't get to hear the songs until he's done demoing them out and he just sends them to me and I'm just like, dude, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, this is perfect. So, yeah, I'm really just stoked uh, about his performance and on this. Now, when did you guys start writing writing this song? Because I know you guys toured a lot on the last album. So when, you know, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, where the seeds from this album started? Well, um, Pretty much as soon as we got home from our last tours, I mean, we had some stuff that was our, that we we were writing before we left, and uh, so AK was working on stuff while we were on the road too. But right. it's it's kind of weird it, for me when I write a song, uh, when I write the music for it, it comes in like like spurts, you know. Like mm-hmm. there'll be a week where I just there's just riff after riff after riff, and I throw it into uh, a kind of like a a template in the Pro Tools, and I can arrange it real quickly and everything, and get it over to AK. And then I'll have like a, a downtime where there's just nothing happening. I'm dormant, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know Steve's the same way too. 
So, so luckily, um, it, you know, even to keep AK's flow going, it, it, either me or Steve are writing for him, you know, to, to get it going. Cool. Now, this is uh, the first album with Ken Mary on drums. Um, was he able to bring anything different uh, this time around that you guys didn't have before, maybe? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> definitely. This dude is, uh, he's like the jack of all trades. He's a right. great producer. He's a great drummer. He's a great singer. He's a great lyricist. And he's funny, you know, and he's definitely a cool dude to hang out with. So, I mean, you can't go wrong. And being mm-hmm. a musician, um, like, you know, when you jam with somebody, you usually know, right. like, right away if you're going to gel. You know, it, uh, we didn't really hold any auditions for, you know, after Jason went to Overkill. We had some a uh, few people, some great drummers, submitting uh, videotapes and stuff like that. But Steve and Ken have worked together for a long time. And he asked Ken if, if he was interested in, in the SWAT. And Ken was like, yeah, I'll do it. And, uh, like, within the first 30 seconds of me jamming with a guy, I was like, yep, that, that'll work. That's going to work out good. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, going through the tracks, you know, you got, you know, the, the album starts off with the uh, first title track is uh, Prisoner of Time. Amazing song. It's the perfect way to start the album out. And it goes through. Is there any track on here that you're most proud of? Uh, no, not really. I'm, I'm just very proud of this record, uh, and right. all of our contributions to it. This has been a one where like everybody's had equal contribution into mm-hmm. it, which is, uh, you know, there's not anybody carrying a, a more load than the next guy. So I'm just, I'm really proud of it. Really proud. Oh yeah. And as you should be, any songs that you're looking forward to playing live? Ooh, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I I always like the fast stuff. So right. I'm hoping Control uh, is going to go over pretty well. Uh, that's a fast one. Mm-hmm. But sometimes in the bigger venues, you know, some of the mid-tempo stuff goes over a little better. So like Demolition Man, uh, I mean, people are going to be able to sing along with that. Right, right. And that's another thing, you know, hopefully we'll be playing as some uh, – some bigger, bigger size clubs and reaching out to some some newer fans with uh, with the, this new record. I'm hoping for that. Right, right. And uh, like, well, I mean, it seems to me like this album is probably one of your most accessible albums. Um, and I, I think you know, getting that newer audience and stuff too. I think that this album's going to go a long way with you for that. Now, you mentioned Demolition Man. You guys have a video for Demolition Man out. Can you talk a little bit about the video? Um, and you know, the story and the concept behind it. Uh, the story in the video, it's um, the it, it's you got to watch it a couple times to see right. what he's what he's, what he's doing because he's he's actually he finds out that this uh, the little girl has got uh, a trait where she's able to uh, manipulate things, you mm-hmm. know. So he's trying to kind of brainwash the little girl to uh, to, to make fire or to. Uh, she's also got the little rat in the video too, where right. he's trying, he's trying to get her to kill the rat, but she she doesn't. She ends up killing him with the fire and stuff like that. Uh, but I don't know. It's just kind of uh, we thought it was a cool concept. Mm-hmm. The video producer Jeremy Trump came to us and and he presented that and was like, okay, that that sounds pretty cool, you know, and uh, yeah, it kind of worked out. So 
Yeah, I enjoyed watching the video. It kind of reminded me, like, a lot of times now, a lot of videos you see, bands are just, you know, performance-based videos, so it was cool to see a video with, you know, you had the performance and you had the story, you know, kind of like, you know, growing up on Headbangers Ball and all that, you know, what you used to watch during that, um, during that time. Was that kind of the intent behind the video? Yeah, we wanted to definitely have some sort of a storyline behind it. We went through a couple of different, uh, like, storyboards with some other producers and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but this one just seemed to really fit fit the song. You know, you, you, you kind of want to you want to do something, not exactly throwing it out there of what the song is about, but you want the, the listener to kind of let their uh, imagination go with things, you know. So it's not directly related right. to... Uh, but you can it's correlated you know i mean there's in ways you can you can see how the guys like the demolition guy you know he's trying mm-hmm. he's trying to you know light things on fire by using this this little girl's powers and so so we just thought it was kind of cool and it, you know it gives some sort of food for thought when people are watching the video maybe they'll go back and watch it right. you know another time as was opposed to like a performance video most of the time that people just go cool and they'll click on something else, the next yeah. thing, you know, and that, that's it. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, we're wrapping up 2018. 2018 was also the 30-year anniversary of No Place for Disgrace. Um, how, how's that say with you? I mean, you guys have been doing this for over 30-some years. Did you, ever, did you think that you'd be still doing this after all that time? Nope, I definitely <laughs> did not. Um, but, you know, that, that it's... I don't. Th- I can't see myself doing anything else. I mean, right. and, and I think the rest of the guys are the same way. It's in our blood. It, it's like, oh, you know, when you take if you took it away, it's like you have a bunch of you'd have five mopey guys moping <laughs> around going, right, you know. Right. So yeah, um, there was a time where I I, I took some time off. Right. Uh, yeah, and and that. Uh, I had issues trying to do that. You know, I still wrote and I still played and stuff like that. I did my own thing for a while, Mm -hmm. but this has been my baby, you know, since I joined the band, this has been like, uh, just, it's just been my baby for writing. Um, you know, and, and a lot's changed in that 30 years and, you know, we've gone, you know, from buying, you know, CDs and albums and tapes and, and now everything's like streaming and, and digital. Do you see that as as a good thing as a progression or do you kind of still miss that old, the old school way of doing things? Uh, you know what? The old school way of doing things, it seems like uh, it, it was more difficult, definitely more difficult, but, uh, like the hardcore fans are trying to bring that back, you know, it seems right. like it's that part of it's making a resurgence, but I do like the, the way, uh, accessibility to new music and stuff like that, even though we are bombarded with killer bands and shit bands at the same time. Right, right. So it's, it's hard, you know, like we're going through our, the, our mental files going, Man, I just listened to, to fifteen bands today on Sirius, and I heard, you know, I heard the four or five that were really killer. Mm-hmm. And how do you go back and like revisit that and try to try to keep up with all the new stuff coming out? It's it's right. difficult to even be a listener these days. Right <laughs> now, I've heard you know bands say, and I've talked to bands and listened to bands. And I can definitely hear you know a flotsam and jetsam influence in those bands. I mean, how's that? You know. You're in, you're influencing a new generation of bands. How, how do you feel about that? That's that's got to be a cool feeling for you. It, it is definitely weird. Uh, I've got a couple of um, messages on Facebook where it's some bands that have um, redone Hammerhead. You know, yeah. and they're young kids. They're like in their their early twenties, and it's just like 
wow, they're, they're playing the shit better than we were, you know? <laughs> and, and that's always cool. And then, and then, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to my friend, uh, Jim Root not too long ago and yeah. he was telling me that, uh, off their last record, he had a couple influences from, uh, from the Doomsday record, you know? And I was yeah. like, wow, man, you know, that's, it, it just, I'm stoked to hear stuff like that. I'm like, really? It, it just <laughs> freaks me out. Like, Right, right. It's, you know, it's, you had your influences growing up and now it's kind of like full circle going around. Yes, which is way cool. <laughs> now, is there any new bands and stuff that you kind of, you know, hear and, and that kind of draws your ear? Um, yeah, there's a lot of bands out there that, that are, that are really good that I'm digging, you know, I mean, guitar players, it, it just seems like everything is over the top right now. Right. And some of the stuff, some of these guitar players, like, if it would have came out in the eighties, it would have uh, uh, just floored people. You know, mm-hmm. everything's super extreme. Sports are extreme. Uh, snowboarding, everything, everything's extreme. Motocross, but like the newer bands that are out right now, same thing. I, I hear like stuff like Parkway Drive. I really yeah. like that band a lot. Uh, man, there's there's a ton of them. Uh, I listen, I'm listening to the radio uh, just before we were. Uh, our interview and was it Ice Nine Kills is that yep. the name of the band yep. god man I like that I like the just heavy angry shit <laughs> right right now um, you know you, you got bands like Slayer who are you know on their last tour and whatnot. do you guys ever you know you guys got to keep going as long as, as you can yeah I think we will until um you know, until we've had enough. When we when we uh, start writing music and we're realizing that hey, this isn't working, it's not sounding as good as our best record, right. then you know it's it's time to put a cap on it and be like, okay. Well, I mean, you, you know, know, we had a dormant period with the band, you know, we're trying to find ourselves. With that. I mean, we released some good songs and some stuff, but there was issues with the mixing and mm-hmm. production when the, when we were with major labels and stuff like that, and it seemed like there was more of a business that actually fucked us up more than anything because, you know, we were on all these timelines. We couldn't, we couldn't do the records the way we really wanted to do them. We couldn't get a mix the way we wanted it. We couldn't get our production the way we wanted it because we're on a timeline, but with our home studios and stuff that we have now, uh, you know, between Ken, Steve and I, we can get the production right and send it off to Jacob Hansen. You know, we can take our time, Jacob Mm -hmm. Hansen mix for us and we can have a product that we're completely happy about and say nothing's coming out until we give a final okay on it and uh, that's one of the big points on the last record and this record as well so i guess that's one of the things that's kind of changed for the for the better where the the bands have a lot more control and are able to do stuff on on their timetable without like the influence from you know the labels and the business side of it yeah definitely pros and cons as far as from the musician side of it, there's right. pros all over the place, but from like the mix and production standpoint, uh, cons everywhere because those guys were making, you know, they would make thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a record mm-hmm. just by doing the production and the mix. And now you got the guys in the band doing the production and they just sub it out right. for a, a lot less, you know, a lot less cost. Mm-hmm. So it kind of sucks for those guys, but we're still keeping them busy because mixing a record and mastering it is definitely like a, uh, it's an art form, you know, you gotta oh, have yeah. the ear and that's something that I just, I admire those guys because uh, it is it is an art form. 
Definitely, definitely. Um, so the album comes out January. Um, you got tour coming up with Overkill in Europe in March, mm-hmm. and then you got the tour of Chaos, you know, through May and June. Um, talk a little bit about these tours, what you're looking forward to most. Ooh. Um, you know what? I'm really looking forward to doing some shows with Overkill since, right. since Jason, uh, Jason's in that band now. And I get along with that dude famously. He's still one of my best friends. So it's like, uh, I I can't, he's so much fun to hang out. He has so much energy. I I can't wait. And the same thing with the destruction. Schmier, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've ever spoke with him or, uh, uh, or if you know him or anything like that. One of the, he's like one of the funniest. He's a big dude, scary guy. But when you talk to him, he's like a giant teddy bear. He's (laughs) super cool, super cool and funny as hell. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so and then you got the summer tour uh, May and June. Unfortunately, you guys aren't coming to Pittsburgh, and we'll have to try and catch a show close by. Um, but uh, after that tour, you, anything for like you know the rest of the year? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go back over to Europe. Uh, we're confirming the uh, festivals over there right now right, for the summertime. Right. So we're working on that. I think we have two confirmed. Or uh, yes, yeah. So uh, the Alcatraz yeah. Festival and Alcatraz, and and then there was another one too. Uh, I have to, I'd have to look at my schedule, uh, but yeah, there's so hopefully you know we get five or six of those going, so we can go ahead head back over there and do that. Those are so fun, right? Right, uh, definitely. Have you have you been over to any of those yet? Uh, uh, like unfortunately, no, I haven't. <laughs> Dude, you gotta go. You gotta go check it out, man. Yeah. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a bucket list item for me. Um, definitely gonna have to try and do that eventually um so like when you, when your shows you know you got your big festivals over in europe you do a lot more of you know the smaller intimate stuff which ones do you prefer the most oh um pros and I cons like them of both, both. I, I yeah i do like them both you know uh, it's very cool to, to hop out on a big stage and be able to have the room to do what you do and have sound and everything like that but then there's something about being in a small venue and it sounds cliche but something about being in a small venue where it's intimate and there's there's a lot of energy you know when that when those shows when uh, when everything like the planets align for those shows uh it's hard to beat the energy on those definitely now do you see are you guys seeing a lot of like younger kids coming out to the shows too because i know like my oldest son he's 12 i started taking him to shows you know when saw metallica he had to, you know make sure he got to see that but you know is you see, starting to see a lot of that happening now yep and that's that's freaking me out too because uh younger kids and their early teens and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh it, almost every show we're seeing uh you know, people are bringing their kids and stuff like that, and the kids are into it, and they know the songs. We see them up front, and they're singing the the, the songs with us, and it's like that that freaks me out. But it like gives me a like a feeling like everything is going to be okay. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even like you know, these kids are singing songs that you know they weren't even born yet, and they, and they yep. know all the lyrics, which has got to be a great feeling for you guys too. Yeah, that's, it is bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Mike, I want to you know, thank you for coming on, on the show and, and talking about us. I'm really, you know, I love this album. It's It's got to be one of my favorite albums so far. And, and it's I can't wait to, you know, for this album to get out there to the masses because, you know, it's truly a, a phenomenal record. Oh, thanks, man. I, I appreciate that. And uh, the guys do too, man. So cool. thank cool. you. Well, thanks for coming on, and I hope to see you out here in Pittsburgh soon.
All right, last but certainly not least, Denny Lane, a founding member of the Moody Blues, also played in Wings, is going to be coming to the Hard Rock Cafe on January 15th with his uh, Moody Wing Band. Uh, Denny uh, has been no stranger to the music. Uh, I was so glad to see that he got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I uh, was concerned as, as a member of, uh, obviously, the Beatles. Paul McCartney was inducted in the Hall of Fame, and then he was in, inducted as a uh, solo artist. Uh, but it was great to see that uh, Denny was able to get into the Hall of Fame. Such a great uh, honor for him. He uh, was a member of Wings, obviously, uh, through all their stuff. But when Paul was inducted as a solo artist, you don't expect that Wings is going to then get you know him and a, uh, Paul McCartney in a third time. So it was great to see that Denny got that uh, nod. So we're going to play you just a little bit of uh, a Denny Lane classic, and let's get into that interview. Gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to the show. We have Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Denny Lane on the line. How you doing, Denny? How are you? Great, thanks, Do, John. Doing very, very well. Um, you're going to be coming into Pittsburgh to do a show at the Hard Rock Cafe in Pittsburgh on January 15th. Um, going to be doing, uh, you know, kind of a, an unusual thing. A lot of artists will do an album in its entirety, but you're actually doing two. You're doing the Magnificent Moody's. Uh, from your time with yeah. the Moody Blues and also Band on the Run, obviously, from your time in Wings. Um, yeah. What, um, you know, kind of preparation goes through? I mean, I'm sure some of these songs, you know, like the back of your hand, where there's some songs that you haven't played in a long time? Or how does oh, that... Yeah. Pre- well, I mean, see, let me just say first, the reason I'm doing these two albums is because obviously they are very synonymous with me. Sure. I mean, Band on the was, you know, us three, and then the Moody's album was the only one I was on. So I'm kind of going sort of to the both biggest albums I, you know, I represent. So the thing is, of course, I had to relearn some of the Moody Blues stuff. It was a bit weird going back and relearning how you used to play. Sure. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I don't do them exactly the same. I've got some of the band members singing on the band on the run stuff as well. Okay. And we're not, as I say, I don't want to, you know, knock tribute bands, but we're not a tribute band in the sense that we do everything note for note. We do a much more up-to-date version of these these albums, you know. Right. And plus a few other as well. Obviously, the stuff that I've done with Wings myself, and uh, so yeah going to be good it's we've done it a few times and it goes down well that's all i care about <laughs> people like it how much of, of your uh, you know obviously people know you as kind of you know the third pillar of of wings and that was obviously a huge thing for you but um do you feel like a lot of people remember you from the moody booze obviously you left the band after one album it was a very successful album but they went on you know and kind of recorded their biggest song after you left the band um do you get a lot of people that kind of recognize you as a moody blues member not really i mean a lot of moody blues fans don't even know i was in the moody Mm -hmm. blues 
<laughs> but no, I mean the thing is, yeah, a lot of people do know that. I mean, mm. especially like uh, Stephen Van Zandt and Paul Schaefer, who are big fans of that album, believe sure. it or not, because they're friends have told me that a lot of people were influenced by it which is a great compliment really but yeah. as I say you know that Hall of Fame thing has really made that obvious and it was great seeing everybody again and and you know we, we all appreciate each other's input as far as the Moody's I mean their sound is very much based on that old sound as well you have mm -hmm. to remember that sure so I mean, yeah, the, the, I do get that kind of recognition, and it's it's nice. I enjoy that. I kind of like that very much. It's much better than, you know, being known for something else. It, you you feel part of like a whole, right. I don't know, organization. You know. Right. Did so. you find um, it kind of renewed your interest in some of this material? You know, going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I should say, was it? Did it kind of get you, maybe a bit nostalgic about this album and your time with the band? Yeah, to a certain degree it did. Um, I've been doing some of these songs on and off, don't forget, as mm -hmm. part of a set. Sure. So I haven't done them as a whole album. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the great thing about the Hall of Fame was that, you know, as I say, we, we acknowledged each other in a, in a way, um, as all part of the same thing. Uh, and that's a really good feeling for me. It's and it, and it got it across to the you know a bigger audience, which is the first time that's ever happened. Really. Sure. So yeah, it's neat to look back on an album. You know, as somebody I was uh, not alive at the time that album came out. I was born when you were in Wings. But looking back, you know, you don't expect when you're reading through. You know, I like to read the album liner notes and things like that. Who wrote what and you see Gershwin getting writing credits and Willie Dixon on the same album, you know you're going to have something really interesting. And it uh, <laughs> it made for you know, a really cool listen, because as American music fans, I mean, we know yeah. the Moody Blues from Nights in White Satin, and that, and some yeah. of the later stuff that, you know, maybe was a little more radio-friendly, but it, it was almost like going back and listening to some of the original Fleetwood Mac albums for me, because it was very different from what, you know, from the radio hits. Uh, and and I much I have to say more enjoyable you know please don't tell the rest of the guys in the band but you know, I really enjoyed the well, album. Uh, thanks. Well, yeah, like I said, we were very influenced by those people. I mean, Sonny Boy Williamson mm -hmm. was a huge influence on us because we toured with him, we backed him, sure. you know, and some of those artists. You know, we we got hold of some American, you know, 45s, like a DJ brought them over, and we just went through them all and added them to our set. We were very much influenced by all the music that was sent over to entertain the American troops in Germany, for example. Mm -hmm. We listened to that Radio Luxembourg thing, and we did basically take that stuff and make it our own and then brought it back, you know. So, yeah, it's just like... Eric will say that about the Eric Clapton's a mate sure. of mine. He always said about the blues, you know. He likes to share it around where it all came from and how we got it and, and made it our own. Even Taj Mahal said to me the other day, hey, yeah, you still got that sound, you know. Because they were listening to us just as much as we were listening to them. Sure. Yeah. Do you feel that the Moody Blues, especially, you know, this kind of incarnation that you were involved with, maybe gets overshadowed when, when they talk about, you know, the kind of the British bands that brought the blues, like the Yardbirds, um, you know, Led Zeppelin, some, you know, Clapton as a solo artist, you know, those are well-known, you know, even the Stones especially, I should say. 
you know, for bringing yeah. American blues. But do you feel the Moody Blues really didn't get their nod in that respect? No, they didn't really. But there again, we didn't get to do the, the Ed Sullivan show, and that yeah. made, would have made it. In actual fact, we were booked for it, but we didn't get our visas through in time. But uh, yeah, we didn't get that recognition for it. Mm-hmm. But there again, we were more of a progressive blues thing too. Mm-hmm. In those days, we weren't, you know, as obvious. I mean, even Donovan, who did the sleeve notes, says, uh, you know, we're the progressive blues band. And it, it was kind of, you know, we were trying to be different. Everybody tried to be different in those days, you see. Yeah, and it was such a special time. Um, was it kind of a relief? Um, you know, obviously, your work with Paul, um, Paul made it into the Hall of Fame with the Beatles and then as a solo artist, but it's interesting because even on his solo artist page on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they mention Wings, but, you know, not as a band, you know, inducting you guys as a band. Was it kind of a relief to get the nod being a member of the Moody Blues because, it, you know, the likelihood of Paul getting in a third time with just, you know, Wings on its own? Yeah, well, uh, you know, obviously, yes, because, I mean, you know, the Moody's should have, in a way, got in earlier, but sure. obviously, what he was saying, you know, why aren't the Moody Blues in there, and Howard Stern was saying things like that, and, and but, you know, when you're finally in there, then you really do appreciate it, you think, Price, that's good, you know, we we we, we finally made it, but, but to be part of that, I see, originally, they didn't ask me. To, mm-hmm. to be there and then somebody a few of my friends who were on the board put a word in for me and then they finally did say okay you're going to be included in it because that was a bit you know weird but not that it bothered me that much but it was certainly yeah. a good to get the final you know the final um, invite so yeah it yeah. felt much better than I thought it would to be honest yeah I think that that happens to a lot of people you hear many many artists say it doesn't matter if you know we we wouldn't go yeah. if we got inducted, and, and I always have to kind of, you know, put an asterisk next to that comment and think that's because they weren't inducted. You know, it's one of those things. It's right. easy to say when you're not voted in, but sure. um, I mean, you know, actually, Graham Edge, you know, you know, Moody's drummer said exactly that. He said originally he said I didn't care one way or the other whether we were in. He said, but now I am. He says, yeah. It feels great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you, when you think of that, you know, you're in the company of. of such amazing artists yeah. across so many different you know genres of music and, and that's you know I, I know every year when we announce on our site who's in and who's not in everyone gets upset because there'll be certain genre of music they don't feel qualifies as rock and roll but you know at the end of the day you're really amongst the yeah. elite you know there were so I many know. great bands that are on the outside looking in um, that it has to feel good but you do feel great when you're there and you see all these other bands being inducted because, you know, it's like, you think, yeah, great, you know, we're yeah. up there. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an accolade. Whatever you've done in your life, it's still a good feeling to be a part of that. Absolutely. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the decision to leave the Moody Blues? I mean, the, the album was, you know, by all accounts, pretty successful. Um, was it just you wanted to go in a different direction um, or, or did you just a personnel conflict type of thing no not personnel well there's a few reasons but one of the reasons was that Clint the bass player left mm-hmm. and to me band you know we got another guy in and that didn't work that was before John Lodge and they didn't really work for me 
it didn't have the same vibe. I was the youngest one too. And I was also saying to them, we need to go back in the studio. We owe Decker another album. We need to go back in the studio, do another album. We're all getting pretty frustrated because of our management was, you know, there's a lot of ripping off going on in those days with, with everybody. But, and we weren't feeling very secure. So I said, we need to go in and do this album. Well, they wanted to go on the road and earn some money, you know. And I said, well, I'll, then I'm just going to go off and write some stuff and just, you know, take time for myself, which I did. We didn't fall out. There was none of that. They, they eventually got Justin, which is a great, you know, move for them. And then they were forced to do their own material because some fan turned around and said, you're rubbish, you know, because they were trying to do the old set. So once they started doing their own material, you know, they actually did themselves a big favor. And, and that was the reason that Decker then came along and said, um, we want to use you for this album we're putting out, which is a, which is a the first stereo record. They wanted to use them to demo this record, and they end up doing their own material, which was Days of Future Past. So that was like, you know, serendipity right there. Right. I mean, that, that was an amazing story, really, because I never knew that story until I saw the documentary, actually. But you see what I mean? So I went off and did my thing, they went off and did their thing, and everybody's mm. happy, so it was fine, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean the great thing is is that obviously it worked out very well for me, for you, you know, to take that yeah. kind of leap of faith to go do your thing. You played um, sure. for a couple of years with Ginger Baker, um, yeah. obviously after his time in Cream, and then can you can you talk about how Wings, you know, how did you get involved with Paul and Linda? Was it um, friend well, of a friend thing, or how, how did that introduction kind of come yeah. to be? Yeah, it was a friend thing originally because I'd, I'd met the Beatles in Birmingham, my hometown. We opened for the, my band. I had a band with Bev Bevan in it. He's a drummer for me, hello. And it was called The Diplomat. So we first met them there. And then when we came to London, there was a club called the Ad Lib and we walked in there and they're all sitting around the table. So we got introduced to them, you know, properly. Started talking, got chatting. And then suddenly we were all going out and watching bands together and you know hanging out in London which was a lot of people were doing that in London at the time they all came from out of town mm. and London became sort of place you know to be so then eventually I uh, did this string band thing that I had going and Paul and John Peter Asher in the audience at this uh, Jimi Hendrix show and uh, of course it went down pretty good because I was doing something a little bit different and um, he called me up shortly after that. So he, he must have seen that because I was doing something different, that it would fit in what, with what he wanted to do, which was to obviously get away from the Beatles and do something new, which I wanted to do as well. So it was fine, you know. I actually was off work because my band members had gone an orchestral sort of tour and then they weren't available to me at the time so he called me at that time and away we went yeah you can't I mean that's just a fabulous timing and, and you know the right things kind of lining yeah. up um, when when you guys started to make music obviously this doesn't sound like a Beatles record it doesn't sound like a Moody Blues record um, was there any kind of framework laid out when you guys were kind of hashing the idea of, of you know, starting to write songs for an album, or um, you know, sort of like yeah. here's here's what we want to sound like a blueprint of sorts. 
Well, you know, it's well put, but, but the, the thing was, obviously, the, the thing that happened was that we had very similar influences. We mm -hmm. grew up with the same music. We loved the same music. Mm -hmm. And that, that went across the board, obviously, from, you know, classical to jazz to crooners to skiffle yeah. <laughs> to every country, folk, rock and roll. You know, we were, we, were, we were fans of all of that stuff, especially John and Paul, you know, the Everly Brothers, sure. Buddy Holly. So we had all those influences. So when, we, when I went to Scotland, all we did was just sit around and play all that old stuff. We already had that feel, that experience of that stuff. So I mean, it it kind of came from that, you know. And then, then starting to sort of, he was writing a few songs, he, some songs he hadn't finished for that first album. Mm -hmm. And we just went in there and just laid them down to see what it would sound like. And um, that was the basic of, of the band. It was just our old influences and feels that we just naturally fell into. So it wasn't contrived, you know. It just was, yeah. You have to write the songs, and then it becomes something else. Danny, when when you would tour with the band, obviously the you know the material was with Wings was very well received. But um, did you feel any at any point on you know especially touring um, any resentment from the fans that you know Paul wasn't with the Beatles? I mean, obviously being part of such an iconic, you know, really yeah. the, the backbone of rock music almost. Um, did you feel any backlash from the fans at all? Not necessarily, no. Because I think everybody was pleased to see him out there. Yeah. And, and I felt, my point of view as well, I felt that people were, at least we're doing something. You know, I was just having a conversation with someone about this, and, and that we don't like to live in the past. We like mm. to live for now, you know, do stuff now. The past is part of our legacy, and we do do some of that stuff yeah, I do now for sure, as Paul does. But, but at that time, we wanted to be some, do something different, and I think that that was embraced by the fans, really, yeah. because he's doing nothing. Simple as that, you know. So there was no resentment. I didn't see any of that. Yeah, I think the other thing that probably helped was the fact that you guys didn't come out and try to do the Beatles Mach Two sort of, you know, well, carry on, you know, in that, that same vein. Mistake. Yeah, exactly. That would have probably met with much more backlash from, you know, the purest of fans. You know, it's great to see an artist continue to make music, but you don't want to see them necessarily make a mockery of, of you know, nah, what you did. <laughs> Imagine. I mean, you can't. You just can't. You know, It's okay for Paul to be Paul now. It's the same with me. You do your legacy, yeah. you do that. But not at that time. Yeah, I mean... It, but in yeah. fact, we didn't want to do that. As... as people you know we didn't want to just do that we we had we were young and still wanted to do something you know new creative yeah and that's a great point you know about your age just you know this wasn't a situation where you know you're just kind of living off the royalties of previous recordings and stuff you guys were still young vi you know viable musicians making relevant music um yeah you know certainly in a different direction than than either of you had come from uh, but you sure. know made some I mean, that's that's where we got the excitement from you know that's what drove us to it. Yeah. Now, um, as a solo artist, um, can you talk a little bit about you know some of the material you've done? Obviously, you had, you had an album just a few years ago. Um, yeah. You know what folks can expect from your material who may not be familiar. You know, as far as style yeah. wise. Well, 
you know, again, I, you know, I have to say that I was never really that successful as a solo artist. I, mm -hmm. I did success with this string band thing that I had. I had a song called Say Don't Mind, which did quite, you know, it got me out there, and people saw me as as a, as a sort of, you know, solo artist, uh, and which did the thing for about a year, but then. Um, Colin Blundstone actually from the Zombies had a big hit with the, the song that I put out with that band it was called Say You Don't Mind and he mm. had a hit with it so that kind of you know saw me as a songwriter who writes for other people too um, so I had that kind of image going and, and for a while I was I was very happy doing that but and it would have built if I hadn't joined them but after I, after I left Wings I left for the same reason is that I wanted to do that solo thing again and I sure. basically wanted to write a lot I did some writing with Paul obviously but I wanted to go in the studio from what I'd learned from working with him in the studio and go in there and, and write material and I did about four or five albums of that mm -hmm. but again they weren't that successful I mean you know come on I didn't have the right people behind me at the time I was just kind of drifting through a lot of it but you know, it's still music that I did, and now, um, you know, I do play some of that stuff, and a lot of people do have those albums. It's not that many people, but the, those people are out there. They always come up to me with those albums, say, "I like this, I like that." Yeah. So, yeah, so it did me good, and, um, and like I say, I can now throw some of those songs in when I feel like it. Yeah, in, into the old stuff with the old stuff, you know. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a, a fantastic show. Again, uh, Denny, I want to thank you. You're coming in January fifteenth. You're gonna be doing the Magnificent Moody's Band on the Run in its entirety. Some stuff from your solo career. It should be an amazing night. Um, you know, for fans of really either band. You know, and and that's a I think it's gonna be a very special evening. So I want to thank you so much, Denny. Thank you. And I might say that the band I've got are really great players too. So you know, I'm really enjoying playing with them. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You know, it's been a good talk. Good my, my pleasure. Thank you uh, so much. I'll um, send this over to John um, when we have it edited. It'll probably be right after the first of the year because uh, honestly, we don't get a lot of downloads in the next week with Christmas and stuff. But yeah, right, uh, we'll right. get this out uh, prior to the show and uh, hope you have a safe Fantastic. trip into Pittsburgh. And uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot. All right, a big thank you to Denny, Michael. David and Frank for coming on the show uh, but more importantly we'd like to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to listen uh, we started Iron City Rocks in 2009 really had no idea where it was going to go as far as audience uh, reach uh, really many many steps along the way we continued to kind of break barriers and kind of blow our own mind as you know other countries listen the number of people listening uh, the support we've gotten from fans online has just been heartwarming uh, and, and made it worth a lot of effort and you know if anybody who's ever put together a podcast there's a lot of work goes into this uh but it's great to to have people enjoy it and that's that's a real pleasure for us it's hard to believe it's been 10 years 400 episodes you know we've tried to do one as, as close to weekly as we can we're not you know perfect in that obviously with 410 years you can do the math we're, we're falling about 12 uh, episodes a, a year short of doing it every week but we do try to provide interesting content uh, to you and we want to thank you so much for listening uh, you can visit us at ironcityrocks.com 
We are uh, love to hear from you at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach us there if you want to hit us up on social media. We are on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter are all forward slash Iron City Rock. So as always, we want to thank you for listening and here's to another 10 years. <laughs>